God bless you, God. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. I uh, have been placed in the unenviable slot uh, for speakers, uh, which is to say right after lunch. I think uh, Dr. Jones knew that of the speakers, I perhaps could be the most animated. And that's saying something, since my Italian friend, Dr. Ventrella, is also a speaker and can be animated. So... um, I'm going to speak today in the first half, briefly, about Gnosticism, ancient and modern Gnosticism, uh, the uh, Onest theology, and then in part two, the antithesis of Gnosticism, uh, twoism or creational Christianity. Uh, Oneism is the pagan worldview corresponding to the ancient Christian heresy known as Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism was the first intellectually coherent oneist system. Uh, Peter Jones addressed this heresy in the early days of truth exchange with his book, The Gnostic Empire Strikes Back. If you haven't read that, I would urge you to read it. Gnosticism is also the first Christian heresy. Almost every other heresy is in some way indebted to it. One writer said it was the boldest and grandest syncretism the world had ever seen. The first attempt in the history of the church to bring the world into subjection to the church by interpreting Christianity in harmony with the world. Christianity was to be made a truly modern religion. Unfortunately, Gnosticism is the most persistent and recurrent heresy in history. It's not dead. In one form or another, it pervades the church today. It pervades our culture. It's not possible to understand the underlying assumptions of the elites in the West today apart from this heresy. It's an equal opportunity destroyer. Wherever this heresy goes in the church, it dilutes or destroys the Christian faith. Wherever it goes in our society, it undermines Christian culture. This is not a minor point I'm addressing today. Nobody quite knows how Gnosticism began. It was likely rooted in the ancient mystical tradition, uh, also a deviant Judaism, Syrian, Persian, and Egyptian thought, and New Testament Christianity, which it radically distorted. But we do have clues as to why it began. The early Christian message was too simple and objective, historically objective for some people. Now, if you think about it, the basic Christian message isn't complicated. A sovereign, loving God created the cosmos and all that's in it. The creation was very good. Unfortunately, man and woman, created in God's image, broke his law and his heart. This brought God's judgment on them and his curse on creation. But in the love of God's heart, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die 
for humanity's sin. Today he's redeeming creation, both individuals and the rest of his cosmos on the basis of his son's redemptive work. Now that's the Bible's basic storyline. It's the creation, fall, redemption paradigm. If somebody ever asks you, what is the Christian faith all about? You say, well, creation, fall, redemption. Let's start there. This message isn't too hard to understand. Unlike almost all ancient pagan religions, it's grounded in objective historical events. Think only of the Apostles' Creed. Think about the Creed for a minute. It talks mostly about what God has done in human history, beginning with the very first line. It's not a compendium of speculative philosophy or theology. Theologians and other Christians influenced by sophisticated pagans wanted at the time a more intellectual, elaborate, subjective religion. They wanted a religion above the common people. They came up with what today we call Gnosticism. What are its chief tenets? I'm going to go through these quickly. First and most importantly, Gnosticism is radically dualist. By dualism, I mean the notion that there are two fundamentally different, mutually exclusive, utterly irreconcilable principles in the universe. For the Gnostics, these two are spirit and matter. Non-physical reality versus physical reality. They're radically different from one another and radically opposed to one another. Now, because it's dualistic, we might think that Gnosticism is twoist. But that's not correct. In fact, the entire objective of Gnosticism is overcoming all twoism wherever it exists. Reality as it stands is dualistic, but reality is moving toward a single undifferentiated unity from which all reality sprang. That fact will become a little clear as we go along. All religions, all philosophies must face up to one obvious fact. There are great defects in the world. You might have noticed this. Great evil. Hatred and murder and resentment, heartbreak, death, what we call natural disaster storms, earthquakes, hurricanes, so on. The world obviously is not what it's supposed to be, at least not what it could be. How do we account for this? Well, the Christian answer is simple. Sin. The Gnostics gave a much different answer. For them, the defect is in creation itself. Man is not chiefly at fault. The creation itself is at fault. This means that the creator is at fault. Now, beyond this Gnostic explanation is a highly elaborate cosmology. So elaborate, I don't have time to go into it. So I'll summarize. <clears throat> Boiled down an utterly transcendent, unknowable God perhaps even the negated God of non-existence. You say, explain that, Andrew. I can't. It's just what it was. The negated God of non-existence. Actually, a principle emanated beings which themselves emanated an entire series of divine emanations. Bunches and bunches of them. I said it was elaborate, didn't I? By emanation, we shouldn't think in terms of propagation as in sexual reproduction. Nor was it a creation God making something of his own will out of nothing. Rather, it refers to a new reality or a being that is an extension of the original being. Then there were these two emanations, 
from the original, Mind and Truth, they were called, brought out 30 other male, emanated 30 other male-female pairs. These pairs were known as eons. These eons were considered the divine realm, the pleroma, or the fullness. Eventually, an emanation called the Demiurge emerged. The Demiurge, more of a lonely god, imagined himself in his ignorance to be absolute. And in his ignorance brought forth our world, the created world. The very act of creating was a defect, and that ignorant defect permeates the present creation. Somebody says, Andrew, that's nuts. Yes, I know. Only someone very intelligent could come up with such an elaborate nuttiness. (laughs) You actually can see how much simpler Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are than the Gnostic cosmology. It's also easy to understand why Gnosticism is rooted in dualism. The material world, our world, is a movement away from the transcendent God. The purest principle is always spirit. The defective principle is matter, the physical universe. In emanation ontology, ontology is the study of being, the further you move from the original, the more inferior and defective the being, the reality becomes. By the time you get to earth, things are monstrously defective. This cosmological dualism leads to the second main feature, anthropological dualism. By anthropology, I mean the study of man. According to the Gnostics, man is composed of two radically different parts. The mundane, earthly part, body and soul, and then the heavenly part, or spirit. Actually, some humans are so denuded that they have no spirit at all, but many others do. The spirit is part of the other higher world of light. It fell to earth when the Demiurge created it. See, he didn't know about that. But the true God, the Gnostic God, sent this spirit down to tear things up. The true spiritual person is imprisoned within his body. Our body and creation are evil because they're of a different kind than the heavenly realm. Now, most humans are simply ignorant of this spirit, this divine spark, which is within them. They're blinded and burdened by their bodies and by this physical created world. This dualism, like all dualisms, must be overcome, according to Gnosticism. And that's why Gnosticism is oneist. The created world is evil in its two-ness, but the actual God, not the creator God of the Bible, understand where I'm going here, will abolish the two-ness. Everybody following me? There must be, for example, androgyny. The harmonizing of genders, which belongs to a larger reconciliation between opposite polarities. The Demiurge, you see, imposed distinctions on the world, but the true Gnostic God will obliterate those distinctions. This leads to the third tenet of Gnosticism, soteriological dualism. Soteriology is the study of salvation. In the Christian soteriology, man is saved from his sin by our Lord's atoning death on the cross and his victorious resurrection. But if man's problem is creation, if man's real problem is his body, which is a prison or a cage, then obviously his salvation comes from getting rid of creation and his body. 
And this is why Jesus came to earth in the Gnostic scheme. Oh, the Gnostics did believe in Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible, but they did certainly believe in a Jesus. Jesus Christ really was the Son of God, according to the Gnostics, or rather the Son of one of the gods. Obviously, however, he can't have been truly human, even if there were a human that died on a cross. This wasn't the Son of God, because God cannot be manifested as physical. And Jesus certainly didn't rise from the dead, which would be to defeat the whole purpose, would it not? The whole point of Gnostic soteriology is to shed creation and the body. Not get a resurrected body, revivified body, as the Bible itself teaches. The body's evil. Why would you want to resurrect it and re-enter this prison house we're all carrying around? Therefore, Jesus only appeared to be human. His salvation mission wasn't to die on the cross for sinners and to pay their sin debt. Rather, he saves humans by opening their eyes to the divine spark within. The divine within. In other words, they are saved by knowledge. And there it is, gnosis. They're saved by a secret knowledge. Thus, Jesus' calling is to, one writer put it so well, I was reading, undo creation. Jesus' calling is to undo creation. Some believe he was even a Gnostic homosexual himself. We're born into the world ignorant, and Jesus the Gnostic comes to show us there's a divine spark within us. He shows us we're imprisoned by our bodies, enslaved by the created world. But at death, our spirit can be liberated from the flesh and rejoin the light, the gods and the heavenlies, after traveling upward through a gauntlet of ignorant and malign gods and angels. If the human spirit makes it through this cosmic gauntlet, it'll be reunited with the divine. There's the one-ism. Then the Spirit, then the Spirit will have achieved true salvation, true ultimate oneism. This is how man is finally saved. The movement to salvation is always inward first, finding the inner spark, and upward, escaping the created world for heaven. Inward, upward. For Gnostics, as one writer said, victory is to come by means of escape. Salvation is freedom from the bondage of creation. Meanwhile, and listen to this pessimistic view. Back in the physical world, the humans that refuse enlightenment will perish, and the world will go on and end one day in utter darkness. We might call this hell on earth. For this reason, Gnosticism is a deeply pessimistic religion. As the enlightened ones die and escape the earth, earth gets darker and darker, and finally vanishes. There's no hope for this world in this life. These tenets lead to a fourth, and for our purposes, final tenet of Gnosticism, um, ethical dualism. Ethical dualism. If the body and creation are evil, then ethics can be understood in one of two opposing ways. First, you you can become an ascetic. This means you can abstain from physical appetites as much as possible. A number of the Gnostics suppressed sex and bodily enjoyments. It was an ascetic revolt against the Creator and creation. Almost all of them were strongly, vehemently opposed to marriage. In fact, when a married person became a Gnostic, in some cases, he was expected to get a divorce. It's the opposite of what the Bible teaches about Christianity when one becomes a Christian. Gnostics deplored procreation. 
After all, if the physical world is evil and your body's a prison from which you need to escape, why would you want to imprison more people by bringing them into this world? They strongly advocated abortion. They supported homosexuality and bestiality and pedophilia since these copulations could not produce offspring. This leads right to another, though opposite, possibility, and that's libertinism. Some Gnostics were libertines, many of them. The body and creation are evil, so why have any regard for them at all? For some Gnostics, therefore, all sorts of fornication and perversion were perfectly acceptable. In fact, some went so far as to say that the divine spark couldn't be liberated until one committed every single form of what we Christians call sin. Every single one. Of course, the sins weren't evil to the Gnostics, perhaps just the opposite, you see. Now, there's nothing whatsoever Christian about Gnosticism. You didn't mean to tell you that, did you? It's anti-biblical. In fact, while all other heresies like, oh, Arianism, Pelagianism, strike out at specific doctrines of the Bible, Gnosticism... Oneism was even more dangerous because it wasn't an error on this doctrine or that, but an entirely alien worldview. That's why it's the most dangerous heresy. Indeed, Gnosticism originated in large part to combat the non-dualistic, twoist message of Christianity. That's how it came about. Gnostics believed that the evil god of the Old Testament this demiurge I told you about, the God of law, the God of cruelty and capriciousness, was countered by the good God of the New Testament, the God who sent Jesus Christ to deliver a fallen humanity from the evil God and his evil creation, the world. They abhorred the law of the Old Testament. They were sometimes blasphemous. If Jehovah were opposition to God, then the villains of the Old Testament must be the heroes. Cain, the Sodomites, and the Egyptians were at war with the evil God of the Old Testament, so they must be the heroes. But the greatest hero of all in the Old Testament was the serpent. He offered to Adam and Eve the very knowledge that would deliver them from the evil world that the Demiurge had created. Now, if all of this sounds perverted, that's because it is. That's precisely what the church fathers thought also. Obviously, the Jesus of the Gnostics is not the Jesus of the Bible. The fall recorded in the Bible is not the fall as interpreted by the Gnostics. Salvation revealed in the Bible is not the salvation of Gnosticism. The ethics or law required by the Bible is not the ethics or law of the Gnostics. Most important of all, the God of the Bible is not the God of the Gnostics. In Gnosticism, man ascends to God in escaping the world. In Christianity, God descends to man and the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem man and all of his good creation. Gnosticism goes in precisely the opposite direction from the Bible. For these reasons and others, the church fathers like Irenaeus labeled Gnosticism a heresy and opposed it with relentless vigor. Gnosticism is sophisticated oneism. The divine spark in most humans is an aspect of God's being. Thus, when the 19th century Protestant liberals talked about the divine spark in man, they weren't inventing a new doctrine. They were reviving a very old one. 
It's this spark that must be liberated to return to the true, unknowable, utterly transcendent God. The divine spark is an emanation within the eternal one. Only the divine spark is eternal. All else will perish. This is oneism with a vengeance. Now let's consider Gnosticism briefly in the church and then Gnosticism in culture. The liberal churches are rife with Gnosticism because it's a keystone of our autonomous culture. Uh, Note this Holy Week quote by the openly gay United Church of Christ pastor, Norman, Oklahoma, Dwight Welch. This is just, this quote is so deliciously bad that I just have to give it to you. Think about this, Holy Week, coming up. Celebration of Christ's uh, death, of course, and resurrection, Easter Sunday. He says this, I used to say no, I didn't believe in the resurrection. And I still don't believe that the laws of biology can be suspended in our favor, that a dead body can be physically resuscitated. I don't believe religious faith can be the suspension of our critical faculties, nor a requirement to believe things that aren't so. That's crudity, a credulity rather, a form of magic, not an expression of faith. But my answer has changed. Today I do believe in resurrection. It is a kind of resurrection that happens when there's a transformation of our lives such that our old self dies and our new self, a more authentic and real self, emerges. He goes on to tell us what that is, what he means by that. When I consider my own coming out story, when I hear the coming out stories of others, the process is a kind of resurrection. An affirmation of life, one that struggled to be born against the odds, against the death-dealing ways of our communities and those still in the grips of fear and prejudice. He meant people like us. We're in the grips of fear and prejudice, you see, because we believe the Bible. The Gnostic notes from this apostate clergy just ring loud and clear. My body can't decide my sex. My true self is on the inside. God doesn't create and govern man's biology. Man may transform this divinely given biology and fulfill his inner dreams of escape from God's external standards. The old self, he says, that is the God-given self, dies in a new self. A more authentic and real self emerges. In short, God's creation imposes limitations, but these limitations render man inauthentic. To be his authentic real self, to release the inner spark of deity, man must transcend the God-imposed limitations. He then is resurrected as the new man, the authentic man on whom nature, creation, and God have no claim. One reason even conservative Christians have been impotent to combat this heresy is that they, like the Gnostics themselves, have tended to separate creation from redemption. So now I'm going to deal with the conservatives. Consider, for example, this particular theological paradigm. Stop me if you've heard it before. The Old Testament was good for its time, but it's far, far inferior to the New Testament. The Jews are God's earthly, fleshly people, but the New Testament church is his spiritual, heavenly people. The promises to the Jews are physical promises, but promises to the Gentile church are heavenly promises, and not for this life, for this earth. 
The Old Testament law was given to the Jews, and the New Testament, particularly Paul's writings, were given to the church. Man himself is composed of three separate parts, body, soul, and spirit. The body is corrupt and can't be redeemed in this life. The soul and spirit are linked together, however. And the great goal is that at our death, the spirit and soul will be released from the body and will fly through the heavenlies to be with the Lord himself. The world is getting worse and worse, and our hope is not in this life or in a renewed creation. Evil will triumph in human history until Christ returns. Therefore, any attempt by us to influence culture or the world for the Lord and his kingdom is doomed to failure and an utter waste of time. We don't confront cultural evil. We escape from it. There will be a resurrection one day, to be sure, after the second advent. But the really important thing is dying and being with the Lord, not the resurrection, whose rationale isn't entirely clear on these theological premises. Because the physical body in this life is so evil, we must be very careful to avoid its appetites. We must be very cautious about enjoying sex. We must not consider food, and the physical world is all that important. Our ideal is almost to be abstemious, abstain from delightful bodily activities as much as possible so we can be wholly given to the Lord. This entire paradigm is wrong. Despite what many Christians tinged with Gnosticism seem to believe, Jesus didn't die to save us from creation. He died to restore man and man's body and all of the rest of creation to its proper God-honoring status. The popular idea that Jesus died to take us to heaven is more Gnostic than it is biblical. It's true that those who have trusted in Jesus Christ will be forever with the Lord. I would never deny that. But we will be forever with him on a resurrected earth. I like to call it an Easter earth. An Easter earth as the heavens descend. And the triune God lives eternally with his people. Revelation 21. We don't die and go up to heaven. God comes down to earth to dwell with man and his creation. To many Christians, though, creation just isn't that important. The only thing important is getting souls saved. They actually don't want escape from sin. They want escape from their bodies. They want to escape from their humanity. They want to escape from the world. The Gnosticized Christians see the godly life as the spiritual life. Spiritual meaning avoiding the wider culture. They believe that influencing education and economics and technology and science and movies and the arts and law would be a work of carnality, or at best, futile. These are earthly and physical things. They think that prayer and Bible reading and quiet contemplation are spiritual. But trees and the ocean and good food and making lots of money and enjoying nature and basketball are not somehow spiritual. But in the Bible, the conflict is never between physical and non-physical. It's between righteousness and sin. Sin is the problem. Materiality is not the problem. Think on this for a moment. The most evil being in the world is pure spirit. And the godliest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, lived and died and rose again in a body. If you don't care about the material world, you can't care much about culture, even Christian culture.
Gnosticism is alive and well in today's culture, not just the church. The theoretical justification for it is its anthropology or view of man. The modern secular Gnostics see the body simply as a vehicle for the person who is the authentic self, the true self. The person, the real you and I, are inside the body, the ghost in the machine, if you will. Robbie George has written so well on this topic. The body is like an automobile that carts us around. There's a radical disjunction between the authentic, self-aware person and the body. The body is simply a tool, like a screwdriver or a fork, though a highly complex one. Now, this anthropology has momentous implications. For one thing, it means that if the self, the true self, is not fully developed, the body is really not that important. The important thing is not the body, but the authentic person. This means there should be no impediment to abortion and euthanasia and mercy killing. After all, it's the self that's important, not the body. If there's no authentic self, authentic self, the person on the inside, the body is disposable. Remember, the body is only there as a vehicle for the person. In addition, if the body becomes a barrier or impediment to the person's autonomous choice, the body must be altered. This is where transgenderism and sex change operations and body modification come from. You might have seen the story of the man who became a woman, said he became a woman, tried to become a woman, didn't become a woman, who now wants to become a dragon. That's not a fake story. That's not fake news. Look it up online. He's slowly cutting and reshaping his body to make it resemble a dragon's. And given Gnostic premises, why not? And as Jeff Vitrell likes to say, and who are you to judge? He's the authentic person. He can do whatever he wants to with his body. The real person inside is, is well, I guess not a person, but a dragon, apparently. Gnosticism is a chief plank of the leftist ideology. It sees material reality as a barrier to autonomous human imagination. The existentialist philosopher, Marxist philosopher also, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote, nothing actual can be authentic. Isn't that weighty? Nothing actual can be authentic. And the leftist inner dreams of the perfect world intentionally bypass God's created reality to impose their inner authenticity on it. Gnosticism is a religion tailor-made for postmodern autonomous culture. In this climate, declares Alan Carlson, there is no normal. There is no normal. Sexual release is the highest value. There are no real lines between male and female. Gender bending is fun and the path to higher truths. Sex has nothing to do with marriage and children. And to hell, I'm quoting him, by the way, quotation, to hell with moral uh, codes and those who hold them. In radical contrast, the Christian glories in creation. Creation fell under God's curse because of man's sin. But creation is not inherently evil. Creation is very good. Our Lord died and rose to redeem not just man, but all of creation. Whatever sin polluted, Jesus Christ redeems. Creation is not and never has been a barrier to man's salvation. It's the resplendent arena of man's salvation. 
Uh, most Christians are not oneist, certainly not consciously, but blind spots in their thinking allow for them to be shaped by oneism despite their best intentions. The chief blind spot is an impoverished view of creation itself. And I'll conclude with this section. I'd like to begin with a uh, bold charge. Conservative Protestants, especially evangelicals, have unintentionally, unintentionally contributed to oneism. Many manifestations of oneist apostasy afflict us. The one presently at the forefront is the sexual revolution, and within the sexual revolution, the so-called same-sex marriage and gender fluidity. Homosexuality is the most striking example, but I assure you that this is only the beginning, only the beginning of a long march to recreating not just human sexuality, but humanity as such. They want to create a new kind of person. No, that's wrong. A new kind of being. We might suppose that evangelicals, Bible-believing people that we are, would have, if anything, opposed this development at every point. And until the last few years, that supposition would have been correct. But even in the previous two centuries, evangelicalism did not man the full biblical bulwarks in such a way as to prevent our present sexual apostasy. Let me elaborate for a minute. Evangelicalism is rooted in the Protestant Reformation, but many historians trace modern evangelicalism more directly to the English and American revivals of the 18th and 19th centuries. Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards, later on Finney, Moody, and then in the 20th century Billy Graham. What was distinctive about their ministries? However much they may have differed, they all believed that salvation demanded an individual decision. You must take Christ by faith for yourself. You aren't baptized into Christianity. You must make a conscious decision to trust him. The evangel, the good news, is that you can be saved today by trusting in Jesus Christ. It was this emphasis, along with its firm belief in the Bible, that was the great driving force behind evangelicalism. Its impact on Christianity and the English-speaking world has been massive. I dare say every person in this room is a product in one way or another of this movement. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for it. But this paradigm is not complete. It doesn't present the full orbit of biblical picture. And its mission opened the way, its omission rather opened the way for our present social apostasy enshrined in oneism. At the very least, it rendered evangelicalism ill-equipped to confront the apostasy ravaging our culture. Evangelicalism has said little about God's will for the very structure of human life the cosmology, how God and his creation relate, what it means to be made in God's image, the differences between the sexes, what are they and why, man's calling to interact with creation. As James M. Houston writes, quote, it seems that the very emphasis on God as the Redeemer has resulted in our fading vision of the prior necessity and significance of God the Creator. Evangelicalism has stressed the evangel, but the Bible is larger than the evangel. And in fact, the evangel presupposes truths that evangelicalism has not spent much time addressing. It's precisely these presupposed truths that have been under attack increasingly in the 20 and 21st century. The creator-creature distinction has been subverted by a neo-paganism in the oneness to new age movement. Humanity as created in God's image has been erased by evolutionary naturalism. 
The male-female distinction has been under assault by the radical egalitarianism of the sexual revolution. Man's calling to steward the earth for God's glory has been combated by radical environmentalism. Because evangelicals haven't made creational truths a part of a full-fledged way of thinking and living, a world and life system, as Kuiper would have said, they've been poorly equipped to combat this assault. We were blindsided, in fact, by the attacks that have gained so much ground in our modern culture. But in some cases, the problem, I believe, is more pernicious. Because evangelicals have embraced a truncated view of the Bible, because they have emphasized the evangel narrowly construed as the be-all and end-all, they've been willing to sacrifice the more fundamental creational truths on which the true evangel is founded. If you've wondered why so many evangelicals have now made their peace with homosexuality and same-sex marriage and same-sex attraction and transgenderism and gender fluidity and egg harvesting and surrogate motherhood and cultural Marxism, you now have one striking reason. These, uh, these practices don't impinge on the evangel in their view, which is the predominant Christian message and practice before which everything else must bow. Opposing same-sex marriage or egg harvesting might keep evangelicals from reaching more people with the gospel. So they're willing to marginalize these issues and to mute their biblical testimony. They didn't set out to do this. There are no bad motives here. If someone had told them that even 20 years ago they'd one day endorse or surrender to gender fluidity or same-sex attraction, they would have scoffed. But their, our, preoccupation with one vital part of the Bible and relative neglect of other vital parts paved the way for these wholesale changes. I'm arguing that the seeds of the present compromises were there almost from the beginning. The neglect wasn't intentional, but it was neglect. And we're now paying a very heavy price for it. How do we get back to thinking and acting in a holistic, biblical way, according to the storyline, creation, fall, redemption, and not keep getting things out of order? How do we unthink a deeply ingrained paradigm? It'll take some intention, but I'm going to tick off some ways, and then I'll be done. Um, Have you ever been watching a movie at home, a DVD? And somebody rushed in out of breath, sat down, and after five minutes of watching with you said, why did he say that? Why did they do that? And they keep interrupting with questions like that. And finally, in in exasperation, you say, you're just going to have to watch it from the beginning or watch the rest of the movie. Similarly, we often jump right into the middle of the Bible story. We start with the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, or salvation by faith through Christ, John 3.16. These are vital biblical truths, but they are not where we were meant to start. And that's why the Bible doesn't start with them. We were meant to start where God starts, and that's in Genesis with creation. And the creator-creature distinction with twoism. You won't, you see, get the end of the story if you don't get the beginning of the story. There's another. I'll move on quickly. I'm summarizing here. Second factor in recovering creational Christianity, twoism, is realizing that all legitimate tasks, all legitimate tasks are Christian tasks. Planting corn or writing computer code or bussing tables or teaching physics isn't somehow non-Christian 
or less spiritual than pastoring a church or serving on a mission field. In all we do, we're to do it for God's glory. That's not a popular way of interpreting God's calling on our lives. Uh, We might call this the problem of a spiritual caste system. A spiritual caste system. One of the main uh, criticisms uh, that the Protestant reformers leveled at Rome was its dualistic scheme of spirituality. The truly spiritual ones, <coughs> excuse me, were the priests and others in church leadership, the monks, nuns, separated from ordinary life, and then after death, of course, the saints, who were the super-exalted Christians. The reformers didn't consider this to be biblical, and introduced artificial distinctions into the Christian church. This meant, according to the Protestants, that every, every vocation itself could be and should be holy. This is one of the great blessings, by the way, of the Protestant Reformation. The office of priest or the calling of a monk or a nun was not a higher or more spiritual calling than a jewelry peddler or a shoe cobbler. Let's call this the Protestant sanctification of vocation. I think Alistair McGrath called it that. It's had a profound effect on culture. It means that the shoe cobbler, the wool merchant, could look on his work as distinctively Christian. It wasn't simply that the culture itself is Christian. Every person's calling within that culture should be a Christian calling. That's part of a truly consistent Christian gospel. Unfortunately, evangelicals have developed their own version of spiritual dualism. In these quarters, they've tended to exalt the work of the pastorate and missionaries and Christian day school teachers as somehow the Lord's work. Brother, sister, are you in the Lord's work? Well, everything else is acceptable, but secondary. If you really want to serve the Lord without qualification, you have to surrender, surrender your life. Have you surrendered your life? the ministry. Oddly, you know, nobody ever speaks of surrendering their life to writing computer code or selling or repairing automobiles or piloting commercial aircraft or making millions of dollars investing prudently in the stock market. But in biblical terms, if in whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to God's glory, if God's called us to one of these vocations or another outside full-time ministry, we in this way surrender our life to the vocation, to that vocation. To the extent that we faithfully serve God in that vocation in terms of God's word, this is our highest possible calling. One of my dear friends here I've known for a while, never met him, met him here at Truth Exchange. He drives a cement truck for a living. Uh, That calling is just as high and holy, if he does that for God's glory, than any minister, any seminary prof, any missionary, anyone. That truth needs to pervade our churches today. The sanctification of vocation. Third, there are no areas of life exempted from Christian redemption. There thus must be no secular, sacred divide. I think we need to abolish the word secular and recover the older distinction. Sacred versus profane. There's a sacred-profane distinction. If it's not sacred, it's profane. All areas of life presently under the reign of sin must be redeemed. This means sanctified by the effects of the death and resurrection of Christ. You want some specifics? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Gutting the theft program known as Obamacare. Overturning same-sex marriage. ending, Ending corporate welfare. Purging pornography. Working to help heal people's pervasive anxiety problems. Restoring originalism to the courts. Outlawing surrogacy, quote, motherhood. Providing for the poor by unleashing the power of the market. 
These, for example, are not, understand, conservative tasks. They're Christian tasks. They're our Christian calling. And they're no less Christian than revival meetings, Eucharistic meals, or Awana or seminary programs. Fourth, we must start enjoying God's good creation. This isn't just a privilege. This is a Christian requirement. Paul writes in Philippians 4, most of you here know it, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. God requires us to ponder the righteous and the lovely and the excellent, both in creation and culture. Covenant children who obey their parents. A jury's decision to convict a rapist. Majestic mountains and surging oceans. Massive skyscrapers and fillet steaks. Box chamber music. Ben Roethlisberger's touchdown passes. I had to add that my wife is a Steelers fan. (laughs) Transatlantic aircraft. Classical architecture. Honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. We're required to ponder, relish these things. They bring us delight in God's world. And enjoying them is a Christian responsibility. Listen carefully. God wants you to delight in his creation. That's a holy thing. That's a holy and a godly thing to do. Next, let's talk about man himself briefly. Um, I'm really just summarizing here to finish up. Uh, To the ancient Greeks, boy, Dr. Boot was really attacking the Greeks, wasn't he? He was just really attacking the ancient Greeks. Great, I'm also going to do it. Um, (laughs) In the sort of thinking we encounter in Plato, man's made up of several distinct and potentially independent parts. That's just what the Gnostics believed, too, if you recall. The soul is the principal part of man, his insubstantial existence, which conforms to eternal, supertemporal forms. It existed before his body did, and it will exist after his body is gone. The body, in fact, is simply the house of the soul. In fact, it's the prison of the soul. According to the Greeks, the body is unnatural for man. Think about that for a minute. It's an alien part that prevents him from realizing what he could if he were not imprisoned within it. This is why the Athenians in Acts 17 rather politely listened to Paul. They listened politely, the narrative tells us. I mean, their attitude was, after all, isn't everybody entitled to his own point of view? Until he mentioned what? Christ's resurrection. You see, to the Greeks, resurrection was silly. After all, the whole goal of life is death, so the man may escape the limitations of the body and join the eternal forms. Why would you want to be re-embodied after death? That defeats the whole purpose. You see, the Greeks, like the Gnostics, wanted salvation from history. They wanted an escape. They didn't want to be left behind. This is as far removed of from the Christian teaching of the body set forth in the Bible as the East is from the West. There's nothing Christian about that. According to the Bible, the body is good because God makes it. It's a good work of God's creation. When Adam led the human race into sin, this sin affected the body just as it affected every other aspect of his being. But this act of sin didn't undo the goodness of God's creation. Man's body succumbs to illness and death because of sin, but these aren't natural. In particular, death isn't natural. Some people say, death is just the most natural thing in the world. That's totally wrong. 
saw my dear mother pass away slowly from cancer about a year and a half ago. People who say death is a beautiful thing. It's not a beautiful thing. It's a very terrible thing. It's called an enemy in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus comes and sees people wailing about Lazarus. And in the Greek there, he was so wholly stirred. He was angry about this, what this death. Essentially, he's saying, this should not be. I am coming to overcome this. I am the resurrection and the life. God threatened Adam with death if he ate of the tree, of course. Death is the result of sin, but not the result of humanity. Had Adam never sinned, he never would have died. So just as sin is unnatural, so is death, and the consequence is unnatural. And then, moving on quickly, sixth, we're almost done. When we grasp these truths, our evangelism will likely change. Yeah. doesn't mean the content, for the most part, but our evangelism, our approach will change. You see, the Bible's good news is a lot better than we often preach today. It's not that Jesus died so that we can go to heaven. Think first of Jesus' gospel preaching. When he began his public ministry, we read again and again, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is God's rule in the earth. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He came to bring his Father's kingdom rule more fully to his people who had drifted away from God. We pray every Sunday, many of us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you really believe that prayer? The overarching goal of the gospel is to include the Gentiles and spread that kingdom over the entire world. That's the goal of the gospel. His rule is over the entire creation. It's not just the human heart. The kingdom begins in the human heart, clearly, but it doesn't end there. Habakkuk declares that one day the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah says much the same thing. That's the goal of the gospel. When we share the gospel with our unsaved friends and family, therefore, we're calling them to trust in Jesus Christ for an entirely reoriented life. You ever noticed how many of the words related to the gospel begin in our English with R-E? Redemption, regeneration, renewal, restoration. The gospel is about getting back to something that our parents lost for us in the Garden of Eden and even going beyond it. In other words, redemption is about restoring and advancing creation. We need to let our unsafe friends and family know that they're living a life that God never intended. No matter how much fun they might think they're having, they're not living the good life. Only God knows what the good life is. He created it for man. The good life is the godly life. It's the real life restored to wholeness. Sinful people are broken people. They've lost their way. God sent his son to bring them back to the creational fold, like lost sheep. The gospel is not about degrading the earth or taking people away from the world. It's about restoring the world and restoring sinful people to God's good creation. Let me put it this way. If you really want to enjoy life, you must become a Christian. That's not health and wealth gospel. Yes, you'll have difficulties. Yes, there'll be hardships, as unbelievers do. But it's wholly different. If you want to know what true satisfaction and pleasure and entertainment are, you can only do it as a Christian. Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief Satan comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Finally, no amens on that. This redemptive work will not fail. God has promised that he'll roll back all sin and its pollution over time. 
When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he delivered a fatal blow to sin and Satan. The Bible's quite explicit about that. Just read Colossians 2, uh, Ephesians 2, there are other texts. This is called Christus Victor, along with substitutionary atonement. Two great theories, truths of the atonement. But he didn't say that time entirely would eradicate them. He works out his evil crushing purposes progressively in time and history. Just as Jesus himself had to endure great pain and hardship in order to defeat evil, so we as his people must endure tribulations and hardships in the great battle while God employs his son to subdue evil using us as his people. In the same way, our Lord is ruling and he's getting the victory and his victory is assured. However, the great battles do confront us both individually and society and there are great times of darkness and that's why we cling tenaciously to the promises of the word of God. All of God's promises in Jesus Christ are yes, and we respond with amen. And this includes the promise to redeem the world. The gospel of redemption isn't designed to unmake and remake creation. The fact is you can unmake and remake creation. You can and I must cultivate creation. That's what the uh, cultural mandate in Genesis 1 is all about. But you can't unmake and remake creation. God did it right the first time. This means that salvation makes us human as we're supposed to be. It restores our full humanity. I love what Gordon Spikeman says. To be Christian means to be human. That is human in the way that God at creation intended it. Listen to this quote by Lauren Wilkerson. It's dangerous to understand salvation in a way that cuts us off from our creatureliness. And this has been the tendency in much Christian understanding of salvation. There are reasons behind simply human sinfulness that make the spiritually hungry people of our time turn away from Christianity. One is that they often see a Christianity that sees salvation as a deliverance from a fallen creation rather than the first step in its restoration. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel saves man to be as God created him, not as man's depraved imaginations would prefer, whether with a reinvented gender or an amputated but perfectly healthy body part, as in today's gender-bending body modification. The gospel is to make humanity fully human again. The gospel isn't a message of man's Gnostic aspirations. The gospel isn't designed to make people androgynous, to free them, to reinvent themselves as transgendered, to open the possibilities of transhumanism by which they can digitally upload their brains into another body and in this way grasp eternal life. This is not the eternal life the Bible promises. It promises an eternal life in a resurrected, fully human, though super spiritually charged body. That is a body fully engaged, energized, and governed by the Holy Spirit. When we preach the gospel in closing in today's Gnostic transhuman culture, this oneist culture, we're calling sinners away from sin and therefore away from their flight from humanity. We're calling them to be fully, fully human in Jesus Christ. We tell them that God's way is humanity's best. Humanity is created in God's image. The gospel isn't compatible with a cosmological reconfiguration that wants man to be something other than what God created him to be. There's simply no room for gender bending, transhumanism, or um, 
body integrity identity disorder in the gospel. The gospel makes us fully human again. To think and act, brother or sister, in this way that I've quickly summarized in the last few minutes is to live biblical, worldviewish, creational Christianity. It's to live as twoists, not as oneists. And it's to fully repudiate Gnosticism. Thank you very much. <laughs>